Today's message comes out of Psalm 73. We've been preaching through the book of Psalms. It's kind of a, an interesting one where somebody is wondering why bad people get all the good stuff. And uh, today's message title is, is very simply, When Life Doesn't Seem Fair. Now, I don't know whether any of you here today have ever been tripped up by trials in your life. Or maybe you've slipped spiritually uh, when you see how carefree unbelievers actually live. Now, if that's ever been the case, you're not alone. I've looked out before and I thought, man, being a Christian is really hard. And other people who aren't Christian, man, they got it easy. They, they can do anything they want to. It doesn't seem right. Well, this is kind of what happened to a guy by the name of Asaph. He was a musician. He is the guy who wrote Psalm 73. And I want you to start by noting what he has to say in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. But you've got to jump back to verse 1, where it says, God certainly is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he's stating here a, a kind of a bedrock truth, and it's this, that God is good no matter what has happened. But Asaph has a problem that you and I have also from time to time, and it's this, that if God is so good, shouldn't we receive more good stuff than the bad people that are around us? I mean, shouldn't we at least have more blessings than unbelievers have? Uh, particularly since they don't care about God, shouldn't we get more because we do love God? Well, Psalm 84:11 kind of reinforces that teaching. It says, No good thing does he, God, withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Well, that kind of spells it out. Uh, how many people here today have a walk that's blameless? <laughs> Just me? Well, I, I didn't mean to raise my hand there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so understand, Asaph was a godly man uh, who served as the chief worship leader. He was the Mary Evelyn of his day, <laughs> if we will. And he wrote, like I said before, 12 different psalms. And yet he comes close to failing. He comes close to giving up his faith. He almost walks away from God because his perception of reality was really messed up. Now, Asaph asked the question that you and I probably have asked different times, and that is, why are the unrighteous, why are the ungodly, why are the people who don't love Jesus, why, are, why do they seem to be more successful than us, and we're kind of left to kind of suffer? Now, Asaph understands the word, but when he looks at the world around him, his faith almost face plants. I mean, he, he takes his eyes off of the eternal, and all of a sudden his spiritual equilibrium, if I can say that word, he gets out of whack. He just can't reconcile his faith with the reality that some unbelievers seem to experience more blessings than he does. And as a result, spiritual slippage begins to take place in his life. So here, here's the deal in this psalm. Our perception of reality will always affect our response to reality. Now we could say it kind of like this. Where you stand determines what it is you see. 
think about that for a moment. Where you stand will determine what you see. Now, why did Asaph, a, a godly man by all respects, why did he come so close to losing confidence in God's goodness? Well, I'm going to suggest to you this way. There were four things around him that he saw that just didn't seem right. And here's his first problem. It's called the prosperity of the wicked. He couldn't understand why bad people got all the good stuff. Verse 1 tells us why he almost went spiritually AWOL. It says, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, envy, good word, not really a good word, but it's the tendency to compare yourself with someone else in a way that makes you feel somehow deprived. Now, notice Asaph is not upset with the arrogant or the wicked. He's just jealous of them. I don't understand why these bad people get the good stuff. And I'm, I'm stuck with God knows what. See, his perspective is on the present, and he has forgotten all about tomorrow, the next day, the future. Now, the word prosperity here doesn't really do justice to the Hebrew word. Jeff probably maybe knows what the Hebrew word for prosperity here. It's shalom. You ever hear that word before? Shalom. Uh, the root word is really completion or soundness, but is more often than not used to describe peace or harmony or a physical well-being. And Asaph just doesn't get this. Now, why should the wicked have what's only promised to God's people? That's the way he was looking at it. After all, Isaiah 57:21 says, there is no peace for the wicked. And he's going, hold it, they got all the peace. I got none of the peace. What's going on here? Life isn't fair. See, Asaph does what many of us, and I don't want to throw you all into the same pot with me, because I know I do this from time to time, but we make judgments based simply on what we see going on around us. See, his focus is only on today. He's focused on the right now, on the present, and he's forgotten what future blessings lie out there for people who really love God. He has, as one author I read a long time ago, he says he has a hole in his soul. He's missing in there somehow. Here's his second problem with these people. He, it's the painlessness of the wicked. It's like, man, why am I suffering all the pain? Jesus, I thought I loved Jesus. Why are these people, why, why do they walk around pain-free? Well, in verses 4 and 5, he wonders why life is so good for people who are without God. He, he writes, for there are no pains in their death, and their belly is fat and sleek. They are not in trouble like other people, nor are they tormented together with the rest of mankind. Boy, life stinks, doesn't it, if you're a Christian? See, the wicked live in the fast lane, but never seem to crash and burn. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who's a great preacher years past, uh, said something kind of interesting. He said, those who deserve the hottest hell often have the warmest nest. Think about that one for a while. So here's his third problem he's got with these unbelievers out there. It, it, the problem is the pride of the wicked. It's one thing to have these people have all this stuff, but why are they so proud? Of, why do they have to keep shoving it in my face? And as Asaph looks closer, he sees that the unbeliever has absolutely no need for God at all. Let's read verses 6 to 12 here. It says, Therefore, arrogance is their necklace, the garment of violence. And I'm going to stop here because the, the, the Hebrew word for violence is really interesting. 
is Hamas. Did you ever hear that word before? Isn't that interesting? Hamas, violence. Their Hamas covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart overflow. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and abundant waters are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and also at ease they have increased in wealth. So you think about those words here. The very people who are often the most arrogant and who live the most peaceful lives, this is what Asaph is thinking, are those people who are most prideful, most pompous. They, they don't need any jewelry because, after all, uh, their pride glitters around them like a diamond necklace. They think highly of themselves. They don't think about anybody else. Verse 7 says they have no limits to their life. They have all the time, they've got all the money, they've got all the influence to do whatever they want, whenever they want it, to whoever they want to, and on and on and on. The wicked, he says in verses 9 and 11, they speak against God. Yeah, there's no God. I mean, your God is dumb. Your God is stupid. You, you know, I don't even know why you believe in something silly like that. And they act like God doesn't know what he's doing. Well, if, God, if there were really a God, I'll tell you what that really God would do. And then they'll proceed to tell you their pride has taken them so high that they literally look down on God. They, they, they're judging God, not to mention you in the process. Now, verse 10 indicates that this boasting or this scoffing or this laughing has a powerful impact on people who are trying to follow God. And I'm going to be honest with you. I've heard enough people say bad things about God that... There have been a few times where I've almost kind of wondered, could it be that they're right? And then I kind of go, nah. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't take me long to get over those kinds of things. But their pride has taken them so high that they actually look down on people like you and me. Um, verse 12 gives a summary of what the wicked are like. It says, always at ease, they increase in riches, they are prosperous and carefree. Well, let's think about these people that we're kind of putting down this morning. Let's admit something. Many of us secretly look up to the rich and famous, the popular people. And we can't hardly wait to watch a Kansas City Chiefs game to see whether Travis Kelsey's girlfriend shows up at the game so that we can kind of bow down and worship her for a while as well. We kind of long to have what rich people really have. I mean, why should I be driving a Kia Sedona van when these guys are driving around in their Mercedes Benz? Why should my wife have to have a little itty-bitty Kia Soul when I saw another guy's wife was driving around in a Porsche? It doesn't seem fair. See, we want to be popular, too. Uh, and we, want, we wouldn't mind being famous for a little bit. We might even compromise our belief system if we could be a little bit. I'm just speaking honestly here. I'm not judging you by saying that you would do any of this stuff. But see, we see that in our culture all the time. You know, Maybe you're stumbling instead of standing up for Jesus. Could we have sung that song this morning? Rather than stand up, sit, we go stumbling for Jesus. <laughs> um, you know, and... Is it more important for us to be popular or pure in heart? 
here's Asaph's fourth problem you've got with these people that he's dealing with. I don't know what any of you are dealing with any of this or ever have. I know I have. His problem is the self-pity of the righteous. Verse 13, Asaph believes there's no advantage in holy living. Why should I be good? This is kind of what he's saying. He starts to slip spiritually when he writes, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Well, first of all, that's a rather prideful statement. I don't know why I'm so good. Why should I be so good when everybody else is so bad? Why take the trouble to be pure? I'm wasting my time. That's kind of what he's saying. And in verse 14, uh, Asaph begins to wonder why he's getting beat up while the prideful people are prospering. And he turns to self-pity in verse 14. He says, for I have been stricken. It's another way. I've been hit. I've been pummeled. I've been beaten up all day long and chased. I've been rebuked every morning. It's like, man, look at me. I'm a Christian. People are beating me up left and right for what I believe and what I have to say. See, his afflictions, he says, are all day long. And when he wakes up the next morning, he's got a whole boatload of of nonsense to deal with all kinds of other problems in this world waiting for him. But, in Scripture, there's always a but. I always love that there's a but. I always wanted to write a devotion book which was called but dot dot dot. You know, but, you know, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. There are probably a whole bunch of buts in the Bible. I have to research that sometime. Now, you guys do that now. Tell me what they are and I'll write the book and get the money. Um, so, but he has a couple of checks on his heart right here. And the first check one is be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. Suddenly he remembers the community of faith that he's the worship leader for. It'd be like me, like, oh man, you brought I was like, hmm, man, I better be careful what I have to say because there are kids here today. Yeah, there are kids here today. Asaph in verse 13, what does he say? Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. But then, in verse 15, he said, If I had said this, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I don't want to make small children believe the wrong thing by the way I act as a Christ follower. See, in other words, if he'd spoken openly about his doubts in church, for example... He would have betrayed young believers uh, by introducing ideas that weren't true. Ideas that were somehow incomplete. Solomon, when he wrote the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, 28, he says, Even a fool is thought wiser if he keeps silent and keeps his tongue quiet as well. See, too many of us think that we can either say or post, or text, or tweet, or do anything we want to without thinking about how this may cause a younger believer to stumble spiritually. I try very hard on my Facebook posts or anything I do to make sure that I don't put anything on there that might cause a younger person to say, well, if Pastor Barry believes that, maybe I can too. I don't want to do that. Here's the second check, and that's just to be committed to learn. The more you know about the Bible, the better off you are, is another way of putting it. Verse 16, when I thought of understanding this, it was troublesome in my sight. In other words, keeping things inside made him want to explode. He was so miserable that he couldn't 
talk to other people. He was overwhelmed because he couldn't figure it out. But friends, uh, it's okay to have doubts. It really is. Maybe in talk back time, some of you could say, well, Pastor, that's really interesting, but I have a lot of doubts. Good. Say them out loud. Let's deal with them. Uh, we have doubts. We have questions. Uh, I mean, what's toxic, though, is unexpressed or unexplored doubt. Uh, when people have the opportunity to express or explore, it connects to a stronger and more mature faith. So we see that ASAP made at least three foundational mistakes here. And these are mistakes I think all of us make in one way or another. First of all, he judges only by what he saw. I mean, if we look around, it's easy for us to judge by what we see happening. The second thing, he left God completely out of the equation. He just shoved God to the side and uses his own perspective. I would say look through the eyes of Jesus would be a better way. Put on your Jesus eyes this morning. And the third thing, he forgot about the life to come. Now, I would put it this way. If my entire 79 years of life up to this point were completely wasted, big deal because I got a future with Jesus. Not a bad deal. Now, I don't think my first years have been, have been wasted yet. I shouldn't add it yet, but maybe, maybe they will. Uh, so, <laughs> you, you need to be uh, growing, committed to learn. Uh, and, you know, go beyond what you see. Go beyond leaving God out of it. And instead, uh, think about your future. Now, in the first half of this psalm, uh, he kind of views life from a human perspective. In fact, if you picked up a Bible and you thought, oh, I'm going to read something today, and you only read the first half of this psalm, you go, oh, man, <laughs> this is pretty, I feel like him. And you shut the book and you'd walk away. But you've got to read the rest of this psalm. Uh, he looks now at who God is and what he has in him. And we can kind of do it this way. you got the first part of the book, verses like 2 through 16, are the trial of faith. He goes through those faith trials. But then in the last part of the book from 17 to 26, 26 are all about the triumphs of faith. So what is it that changes everything from Asaph of being a real downer a guy who's wondering why he's always getting into the shorts when everybody else is having happy, clappy times. Well, it's pretty easy. Uh, verse 17 is the hinge point. It says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. In other words, it wasn't until I got to restore on Sunday. That's a paraphrase. That's from Kolb's general version of the Bible. Entered means to come. It also means go. He had to get up and go and not stay where he was. And that's why, you know, I'm speaking to the crowd that's normally here anyway, but it's important to gather people together to meet with God and regain our perspective. See, if we don't gaze at God, um, we default to our human perspective and we end up becoming bitter, we become jealous. Uh, it's only when God is at the center of what we're doing that we're kind of redirected to who we really are. I mean, that, that is the, that's the cool thing about communion. We come together and all of a sudden we realize we've come from scattered places as far away as Galena. Uh, but we're all one body. We're all one body. It's only when we gather here when we see things that way. See, when we think we're not enough, 
we end up in a bad place. Psalm 63 says, So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He tries to hang that out front. Come on in and behold what? Behold God's power and glory. See, our muddled thinking only gets cleaned up when we meet with God. And it happens not only in worship settings. It opens When you open up your Bible on a Monday, when you're studying your Bible study fellowship lessons, it, it, something's happening there. Your muddled thinking gets all straightened out and you kind of go, I can't believe I was thinking that. I'm glad gave me, God gave me a little bit of a dope slap here and, and helped me. Uh, but a lot of days, too many people just unplug and go their happy, clappy way and then think, man, life really stinks. See, because they're not gathering in God's presence, their thinking gets out of whack. They start slipping. And um, I wrote something in my notes. I keep going back and forth whether I should say it out loud or not. But I guess I will. Uh, I, we need to view our gatherings as not optional but essential. Being here on a Sunday morning or being in worship somewhere ought not to be optional. It ought to be essential for us to gather together and strengthen our faith. So as we look at life through the eyes of eternity, we see four things here. One of them is the ruin of the wicked. Verses 18 to 20, Asaph's reality is reframed when he finally sees that God has placed the wicked on a slippery slope. He said, you indeed put them on a slippery ground. You drop them into ruin. Now, in verse 2, he thought he was the one that was slip sliding away. And now he recognizes from heaven's perspective, it's lost people who've lost their footing. And they're the ones that are slip sliding away. They have a quick ride to the bottom. And when God's judgment comes, guess what? Those who wanted nothing to do with God are going to be judged accordingly. Now, verse 9, the destiny of those people who do not Jesus, how they are... They are destroyed in a moment, swept away by sudden terrors. It's like God says, get out of my courtroom. (laughs) Innocent people only. Guilty people, you're gone. And then he echoes uh, this, and it comes from uh, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He says, "While while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them as surely as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Bad people have something in store for them that I think none of us here today want to be a part of at the end. So, friends, we just need listen. Instead of jealously longing for things that lost people have, we should have a holy horror about their destiny. See, verse 20 warns us that they are living a dream that's eventually going to end up a nightmare. So, second thing we see here is the repentance of the righteous. In verses 21 and 22... Asaph owns up to his own sin. He's been complaining and moaning and groaning. Why, do, why am I getting in the shorts all the time? Everybody, gets, He finally gets, comes around and he says this. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was stupid and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. See, when he wanted what the wicked people had, he was eaten up on the inside. And that can do it to you. But third, he sees the rewards of the righteous. And I love the very first word of verse 23. That's a great word, isn't it? Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Great word. 
Asaph had really underestimated his prosperity all along. I mean, four things he actually now knows. He knows about God's presence. He said, you're continually with me. Now, where can, where can you guys go today that you can get away from God's presence? You got God's protection. You have taken hold of my right hand. Now, I know your daughter didn't hold your hand when he came in. Maybe the kids held hands as they walked in today. But I remember going out with our kids a long time ago. You get outside, boy, they immediately latch onto your hand. They want to go where you were going. And so Asaph is saying what we can do is God's got to hold my hand. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no other because he's holding my hand. That's my paraphrase also again. There's God's guidance in verse 24. You'll guide me with your plan. And you all probably got a a plan book somewhere. It's called the Bible. (laughs) Pretty good plan book. And then there's God's glory. And afterwards, you're going to receive me into your glory. And in verse 25, Asaph is finally at the point where God's always wanted him to be. And he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And with you, I desire nothing on earth. And I suggest that for all of us here today, including myself, we need to get to the point of saying, saying pretty often, God, you're all I want because you're all I really need. Uh, Then I'm not going to worry so much about whether life is fair. See, Asaph knew nothing was more valuable than what he already had, which was a relationship with his with his father in heaven. Now, in verse 26, he makes a very bold confession. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, that Hebrew word for strength is really rock. And uh, he's standing on the rock, Christ the rock. And as a Levite, he also knew what that word portion meant. Now, if you're a good old Hebrew scholar and you know that he was a Levite, uh, he also knew that his job was very much dependent upon the tithes and offerings of the people that came to the temple. And so while his present needs were cared for, they're taken care of through people's faithful stewardship, his eternal inheritance was taken, was given to him by Jesus who said, stand on this rock and be saved. So here's the fourth point here. This is the responsibility today for people like you and me. Where, where do we fit into this? We can all go back and say, man, Asaph was really a dope. <laughs> That'd be one we'd look at. I mean, this guy, is the, he's the head worship leader at the temple of Jesus. And look what he almost did. Well, what about us? I think Asaph uh, urges us to make at least two commitments. One of them is to stay near to God. Stay near to God. Verse 28, whom do I have in heaven but you. And with you, I desire nothing on earth, he said. Forever my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or if you prefer, jump a little bit into the New Testament, James 4, 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's one thing. Stay near to God. Don't let him get distant. The other thing is tell other people about him. We see this in the very last phrase of this psalm, that I may tell of all your works. See, before Asaph ever worshipped, he concluded that it wasn't worth following God. And don't miss the connection here. As long as he was disconnected from God, he couldn't tell anybody else about him. Because envy 
is really the enemy of evangelism. I got what I want. I don't need anything else. Verses 27 to 24. Behold, those who are far away from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is good for me. I have made the Lord my refuge so that what? So that I might tell of all your works. But check this out. Those who are prone to envy are often the ones that we need to rescue. We can't just sit on the good news while people are kind of slip sliding on the way to hell. Got any ASAPs here today? One feeble hand over here. I think all of us got a little bit of ASAP in us, one way or another. Why am I taking it in the shorts all the time and everybody else seems to be doing so well? Doesn't seem fair to me. And sometimes that, sometimes, I'm saying that it's not all bad, kind of sometimes to kind of wonder about that. But don't let it help you slip slide even further away. Um, See, your father's with you all the time. And he's giving you a picture of his love. Uh, Jesus died in your place. He was a substitute. That's why we have a cross on the wall here. There's a cross over here. It's probably crosses in a lot of different places here today. Uh, he died in your place. He was your substitute on the cross. So you don't need to pay the price for, uh, for the sins by, uh, by spending an eternity in hell. So instead of tripping and slipping, uh, you'll be secure because, as Asaph reminded us, he's our rock and he's our portion. He's our refuge. Now, I'm not a mind reader. I, I'm glad I don't have that gift. Uh, but if you're far from God today, draw near to him. If you're far from God, allow him to reframe your reality. If you're far from God today, maybe you need to step back and repent of sin some way. If you are far from God today, Maybe you have to say it for the very first time. I want Jesus in my life to be my Lord and Savior. And then, once you are part of his family, do what Asaph did. You go tell everybody you know about the wonderful way that he rescued you.